Chapter One of Quicksand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Quicksand by Nella Larson. My old man died in a fine big house. My ma died in a shack. I wonder where I'm going to die, being neither white nor black. Langston Hughes Chapter One. Helga Crane sat alone in her room, which at that hour, eight in the evening, was in soft gloom. Only a single reading-lamp, dimmed by a great black and red shade, made a pool of light on the blue Chinese carpet, on the bright covers of the books which she had taken down from their long shelves, on the white pages of the opened ones selected, on the shining brass bowl crowded with many-coloured nasturtiums beside her on the low table, and on the oriental silk which covered the stool at her slim feet. It was a comfortable room, furnished with rare and intensely personal taste, flooded with southern sun in the day, but shadowy just then with the drawn curtains and single-shaded light. Large, too so large that the spot where Helga sat was a small oasis in a desert of darkness, and eerily quiet. But that was what she liked after her taxing day's work, after the hard classes, in which she gave willingly and unsparingly of herself with no apparent return. She loved this tranquillity, this quiet, following the fret and strain of the long hours spent among fellow-members of a carelessly unkind and gossiping faculty following the strenuous rigidity of conduct required in this huge educational community of which she was an insignificant part. This was her rest, this intentional isolation for a short while in the evening, this little time in her own attractive room with her own books. To the rapping of other teachers, bearing fresh scandals, or seeking information, or more concrete favours, or merely talk, at that hour Helga Crane never opened her door. An observer would have thought her well fitted to that framing of light and shade. A slight girl of twenty-two years, with narrow sloping shoulders and delicate but well-turned arms and legs, she had none the less an air of radiant careless health. In vivid green and gold negligee and glistening brocaded mules, deep sunk in the big high-backed chair, against whose dark tapestry her sharply cut face, with skin like yellow satin, was distinctly outlined, she was, to use a hackneyed word, attractive. Black, very broad brows over soft yet penetrating dark eyes, and a pretty mouth, whose sensitive and sensuous lips had a slight questioning petulance and a tiny dissatisfied droop, were the features on which the observer's attention would fasten. Though her nose was good, her ears delicately chiselled, and her curly blue-black hair plentiful and always straying in a little wayward, delightful way. Just then it was tumbled, falling unrestrained about her face and onto her shoulders. Helga Crane tried not to think of her work and the school as she sat there. Ever since her arrival in Naxos she had striven to keep these ends of the days from the intrusion of irritating thoughts and worries. Usually she was successful, but not this evening. Of the books which she had taken from their places she had decided on Marmaduke Pickthall's Saeed the Fisherman. 
She wanted forgetfulness, complete mental relaxation, rest from thought of any kind. For the day had been more than usually crowded with distasteful encounters and stupid perversities. The sultry, hot southern spring had left her strangely tired and a little unnerved. And annoying beyond all other happenings had been that affair of the noon period, now again thrusting itself on her already irritated mind. She had counted on a few spare minutes in which to indulge in the sweet pleasure of a bath and a fresh cool change of clothing. And instead, her luncheon-time had been shortened, as had that of every one else, and immediately after the hurried gulping down of a heavy hot meal, the hundreds of students and teachers had been herded into the sun-baked chapel to listen to the banal, the patronizing, and even the insulting remarks of one of the renowned white preachers of the state. Helga shuddered a little as she recalled some of the statements made by that holy white man of God to the black folk sitting so respectfully before him. This was, he had told them, with obvious sectional pride, the finest school for negroes anywhere in the country, north or south. In fact, it was better even than a great many schools for white children. And he had dared any northerner to come south and after looking upon this great institution to say that the southerner mistreated the negro. And he had said that if all negroes would only take a leaf out of the book of Naxos and conduct themselves in the manner of the Naxos products, there would be no race problem, because Naxos negroes knew what was expected of them. They had good sense and they had good taste. They knew enough to stay in their places. And that, said the preacher, showed good taste. He spoke of his great admiration for the negro race. No other race in so short a time had made so much progress. But he had urgently besought them to know when and where to stop. He hoped, he sincerely hoped, that they wouldn't become avaricious and grasping, thinking only of adding to their earthly goods, for that would be a sin in the sight of Almighty God. And then he had spoken of contentment, embellishing his words with scriptural quotations, and pointing out to them that it was their duty to be satisfied in the estate to which they had been called, hewers of wood and drawers of water. And then he had prayed. Sitting there in her room long hours after, Helga again felt a surge of hot anger and seething resentment. And again it subsided in amazement at the memory of the considerable applause which had greeted the speaker just before he had asked his God's blessing upon them. The South. Naxos. Negro education. Suddenly she hated them all. Strange, too, for this was the thing which she had ardently desired to share in, to be a part of this monument to one man's genius and vision. She pinned a scrap of paper about the bulb under the lamp's shade, for having discarded her book in the certainty that in such moods even Saeed and his audacious villainy could not charm her, she wanted an even more soothing darkness. She wished it were vacation, so that she might get away for a time. No, forever, she said aloud. The minutes gathered into hours, but still she sat motionless a disdainful smile or an angry frown passing now and then across her face. Somewhere in the room a little clock ticked time away. Somewhere outside a whippoorwill wailed. Evening died. A sweet smell of early southern flowers rushed in on a newly risen breeze which suddenly parted the thin silk curtains at the opened windows. A slender, frail glass vase fell from the sill, with a tingling crash, but Helga Crane did not shift her position and the night grew cooler 
and older. At last she stirred uncertainly, but with an overpowering desire for action of some sort. A second she hesitated, then rose abruptly and pressed the electric switch with determined firmness, flooding suddenly the shadowy room with a white glare of light. Next she made a quick nervous tour to the end of the long room, paused a moment before the old bow-legged secretary that held with almost articulate protest her schoolteacher paraphernalia of drab books and papers. Frantically Helga Crane clutched at the lot, and then flung them violently, scornfully, toward the waste-basket. It received a part, allowing the rest to spill untidily over the floor. The girl smiled ironically, seeing in the mess a simile of her own earnest endeavour to inculcate knowledge into her indifferent classes. Yes, it was like that. A few of the ideas which she tried to put into the minds, behind which those baffling ebony, bronze, and gold faces reached their destination, the others were left scattered about. And, like the gay, indifferent waste-basket, it wasn't their fault. No, it wasn't the fault of those minds back of the diverse coloured faces. It was rather the fault of the method, the general idea behind the system. Like her own hurried shot at the basket, the aim was bad, the material drab and badly prepared for its purpose. This great community, she thought, was no longer a school. It had grown into a machine. It was now a show-place in the black belt, exemplification of the white man's magnanimity, refutation of the black man's inefficiency. Life had died out of it. It was, Helga decided, now only a big knife with cruelly sharp edges ruthlessly cutting all to a pattern—the white man's pattern. Teachers as well as students were subjected to the pairing process, for it tolerated no innovations, no individualisms. Ideas it rejected, and looked with open hostility on one and all who had the temerity to offer a suggestion or ever so mildly express a disapproval. Enthusiasm, spontaneity, if not actually suppressed, were at least openly regretted as unladylike or ungentlemanly qualities. The place was smug and fat with self-satisfaction. A peculiar characteristic trait, cold, slowly accumulated unreason in which all values were distorted or else ceased to exist, had with surprising ferociousness shaken the bulwarks of that self-restraint which was also curiously a part of her nature. And now that it had waned as quickly as it had risen, she smiled again, and this time the smile held a faint amusement, which wiped away the little hardness which had congealed her lovely face. Nevertheless, she was soothed by the impetuous discharge of violence, and a sigh of relief came from her. She said aloud, quietly, dispassionately, "'Well, I'm through with that,' and shutting off the hard, bright blaze of the overhead lights, went back to her chair and settled down with an odd gesture of sudden soft collapse, like a person who had been for months fighting the devil, and then unexpectedly had turned round and agreed to do his bidding. Helga Crane had taught in Naxos for almost two years, at first with the keen joy and zest of those immature people who have dreamed dreams of doing good to their fellow-men. But gradually this zest was blotted out, giving place to a deep hatred for the trivial hypocrisies and careless cruelties, which were, unintentionally perhaps, a part of the Naxos policy of uplift. Yet she had continued to try not only to teach, but to befriend those happy singing children, 
whose charm and distinctiveness the school was so surely ready to destroy. Instinctively Helga was aware that their smiling submissiveness covered many poignant heartaches, and perhaps much secret contempt for their instructors. But she was powerless. In Naxos, between teacher and student, between condescending authority and smouldering resentment, the gulf was too great, and too few had tried to cross it. It couldn't be spanned by one sympathetic teacher. It was useless to offer her atom of friendship, which under the existing conditions was neither wanted nor understood. Nor was the general atmosphere of Naxos, its air of self-rightness and intolerant dislike of difference, the best of mediums for a pretty, solitary girl with no family connections. Helga's essentially likable and charming personality was smudged out. She had felt this for a long time. Now she faced with determination that other truth which she had refused to formulate in her thoughts, the fact that she was utterly unfitted for teaching, even for mere existence, in Naxos. She was a failure here. She had, she conceded now, been silly, obstinate to persist for so long. A failure. Therefore no need, no use to stay longer. Suddenly she longed for immediate departure. How good, she thought, to go now, to-night! And frowned to remember how impossible that would be. The dignitaries, she said, are not in their offices, and there will be yards and yards of red tape to unwind, gigantic, impressive spools of it. And there was James Vale to be told, and much-needed money to be got. James, she decided, had better be told at once. She looked at the clock racing indifferently on. No, too late. It would have to be to-morrow. She hated to admit that money was the most serious difficulty. Knowing full well that it was important, she nevertheless rebelled at the unalterable truth that it could influence her actions, block her desires. A sordid necessity to be grappled with. With Helga it was almost a superstition that to concede to money its importance magnified its power. Still, in spite of her reluctance and distaste, her financial situation would have to be faced, and plans made, if she were to get away from Naxos with anything like the haste which she now so ardently desired. Most of her earnings had gone into clothes, into books, into the furnishings of the room which held her. All her life Helga Crane had loved and longed for nice things. Indeed it was this craving, this urge for beauty which had helped to bring her into disfavour in Naxos, pride and vanity, her detractors called it. The sum owing to her by the school would just a little more than buy her ticket back to Chicago. It was too near the end of the school term to hope to get teaching work anywhere. If she couldn't find something else, she would have to ask Uncle Peter for a loan. Uncle Peter was, she knew, the one relative who thought kindly, or even calmly, of her. Her stepfather, her stepbrothers and sisters, and the numerous cousins, aunts, and other uncles could not even be remotely considered. She laughed a little, scornfully, reflecting that the antagonism was mutual, or perhaps just a trifle keener on her side than on theirs. They feared and hated her. She pitied and despised them. Uncle Peter was different. In his contemptuous way he was fond of her. Her beautiful, unhappy mother had been his favorite sister. Even so, Helga Crane knew that he would be more likely to help her, because her need would strengthen his oft-repeated conviction that because of her negro blood she would never amount to anything, than from motives of affection or loving memory. This knowledge, in its present aspect of truth, 
irritated her to an astonishing degree. She regarded Uncle Peter almost vindictively, although he had always been extraordinarily generous with her, and she fully intended to ask his assistance. A beggar, she thought ruefully, cannot expect to choose. Returning to James Vale, her thoughts took on the frigidity of complete determination. Her resolution to end her stay in Naxos would of course inevitably end her engagement to James. She had been engaged to him since her first semester there, when both had been no workers and both were lonely. Together they had discussed their work and problems in adjustment, and had drifted into a closer relationship. Bitterly she reflected that James had speedily and with entire ease fitted into his niche. He was now completely naturalized, as they used laughingly to call it. Helga, on the other hand, had never quite achieved the unmistakable Naxos mould, would never achieve it, in spite of much trying. She could neither conform nor be happy in her unconformity. This she saw clearly now, and with cold anger at all the past futile effort. What a waste! How pathetically she had struggled in those first months, and with what small success! A lack somewhere! Always she had considered it a lack of understanding on the part of the community, but in her present new revolt she realized that the fault had been partly hers—a lack of acquiescence. She hadn't really wanted to be made over. This thought bred a sense of shame, a feeling of ironical disillusion. Evidently there were parts of her she couldn't be proud of. The revealing picture of her past striving was too humiliating. It was as if she had deliberately planned to steal an ugly thing, for which she had had no desire, and had been found out. Ironically she visualized the discomfort of James Vale, how her maladjustment had bothered him. She had a faint notion that it was behind his ready assent to her suggestion about a longer engagement than originally they had planned. He was liked and approved of in Naxos and loathed the idea that the girl he was to marry couldn't manage to win liking and approval also. Instinctively Helga had known that secretly he had placed the blame upon her. How right he had been! Certainly his attitude had gradually changed, though he still gave her his attentions. Naxos pleased him, and he had become content with life as it was lived there. No longer lonely, he was now one of the community, and so beyond the need or the desire to discuss its affairs and its failings with an outsider. She was, she knew, in a queer, indefinite way, a disturbing factor. She knew, too, that a something held him, a something against which he was powerless. The idea that she was in but one nameless way necessary to him filled her with a sensation amounting almost to shame and yet his mute helplessness against that ancient appeal by which she held him pleased her and fed her vanity, gave her a feeling of power. And at the same time she shrank away from it, subtly aware of possibilities she herself couldn't predict. Helga's own feelings defeated inquiry, but honestly confronted all pretense brushed aside, the dominant one, she suspected, was relief. At least she felt no regret that to-morrow would mark the end of any claim she had upon him. The surety that the meeting would be a clash annoyed her, for she had no talent for quarrelling. When possible she preferred to flee. That was all. The family of James Vale in nearby Atlanta would be glad. They had never liked the engagement, had never liked Helga Crane. Her own lack of family disconcerted them. 
no family. That was the crux of the whole matter. For Helga it accounted for everything—her failure here in Naxos, her former loneliness in Nashville. It even accounted for her engagement to James. Negro society, she had learned, was as complicated and as rigid in its ramifications as the highest strata of white society. If you couldn't prove your ancestry and connections, you were tolerated, but you didn't belong. You could be queer, or even attractive, or bad, or brilliant, or even love beauty and such nonsense if you were a Rankin, or a Leslie, or a Scoville, in other words, if you had a family. But if you were just plain Helga Crane, of whom nobody had ever heard, it was presumptuous of you to be anything but inconspicuous and conformable. To relinquish James Vale would most certainly be social suicide, for the Vales were people of consequence. The fact that they were a first family had been one of James's attractions for the obscure Helga. She had wanted social background, but she had not imagined that it could be so stuffy. She made a quick movement of impatience and stood up. As she did so, the room whirled about her in an impish, hateful way. Familiar objects seemed suddenly unhappily distant. Faintness closed about her like a vice. She swayed, her small, slender hands gripping the chair-arms for support. In a moment the faintness receded, leaving in its wake a sharp resentment at the trick which her strained nerves had played upon her. And after a moment's rest she hurriedly got into bed, leaving her room disorderly for the first time. Books and papers scattered about the floor, fragile stockings and underthings, and the startling green and gold negligee dripping about on chairs and stool, met the encounter of the amazed eyes of the girl who came in the morning to awaken Helga Crane. End of chapter 1